0: Hi, I'm Ian DeLisi. Welcome to episode 26 of Essential Conversations. In 2016, I sat down with political activist, poet, and writer John Sinclair. We had a candid interview about Detroit's history and the rebellion of 1967, about famously getting arrested for two marijuana cigarettes, and the critical court case that followed. We also talked about his work with the Stooges and his role as a manager of the MC5, and he shared with me his one big regret. John and I used to work at WDET together decades ago, and it was nice to see him after so many years.
1: Years. Nice to see you again.
0: It's good to see you again. Every once in a while, I'll be talking with somebody, and I remind them that uh, you were working at WDET when I was here the first time around.
1: Yes, I'm an alumnus. You are. Of course, we were in that Cadillac dealership not on Cass, the other end of <laughs> <That's Cass. right. laughs> You know, the funniest thing was I used to do a shift change every Saturday night at 2 a.m. with famous coachman. right. And one night we were staying in the beautiful outdoors at 2 o'clock in the morning. He told me that he used to work at the Cadillac dealership as a porter. Really? I about blew the top of my head off.
0: <laughs> I had no idea. I, I loved, didn't either. I loved that man. Oh, he
1: was a great American.
0: He was an awesome, awesome guy. So I want to mention something to you. In the recent past, Don Was and Iggy Pop were in town for a couple of different events. And... Not together at two different events. Each of them mentioned you as a significant influence on them, their careers, and uh, their lives. Here's Iggy Pop talking about you in an interview I did with him and Jim Jarmish about the film Gimme Danger.
1: I'm allowed to say John was kind of a loose cannon because I'm a loose cannon. And so I can say that about him, but he did just, he did so much. I, would, I, I wouldn't have never listened to John Coltrane. If it wasn't for John Sinclair. And, How uh, does
0: it feel to listen to it, these guys basically he shared, point to you he shared a, a platform, point in their lives with, where with things us. really changed for them?
1: Well, it's true. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I feel good to hear them say this, but I was there when it happened, so I remember it quite vividly. I heard Iggy the first time they ever performed as the Stooges. Um, I got him into the Grandy Ballroom. I got him his first record contract. But this is the first time in 50 years that he's acknowledged that I had anything to do with it. So, And then he embraced me at the Third Man record shop the other night. So I enjoyed that, you know. Yeah. We used to be pretty good friends when he worked at Discount Records and he was and Jim Albert, Osterberg. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and his manager, Jim Silver, was one of my best friends. So when he got involved with trying to help the Stooges out, as managers, that was what our thing was to try and help these bands. out. we didn't know anything about managing, but we knew they were great, and they needed help. So I tried to help Jimmy Silver as much as I could with getting things going for the stories. Right. plus, I thought they were just a fantastic musical outfit, yeah, they weren't a rock and roll band; they were I say they were more like Laurie Anderson, yeah, today performance I mean, a art, performer sort of. to us. Iggy, uh, as Iggy said, they couldn't sing a Chuck Berry song if they had to save their ass. So. <laughs> but they were powerful, man. They were so great.
0: And at the time, you were, of course, managing the MC5. Correct. And you saved that band. They really needed the adult supervision <laughs> that you provided to them. Wow,
1: well, I don't think you could really call it adult, but it was disciplined. <laughs> uh, 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 uh. I gave them my full attention for about two years. And it was very rewarding for me because they were so great. They were so great. I got to hear them every time they played. They were just fantastic. They are just nominated them for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which is kind of a sick joke. But uh, and who knows if they'll get elected or not. And if they do... I'm praying that they invite me to be part of it. Who knows?
0: Well, you should be. Wayne will
1: probably insist. Wayne and I are the best of friends. We're talking about Wayne Kramer, of course. Yeah, lead guitarist. Yes,
0: of course. Um, It would be interesting to see how that would play out. I mean, right now. Yeah,
1: very interesting. Although you can't really think too much of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because these guys should have been in there 25 years ago and Mitch Ryder isn't in there. How can yep. you have a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame without Mitch Ryder? I don't understand it. Yep. Oh.
0: It would be great to see the MC5 get in there. The Stooges <laughs> were inducted, I think, in 2010. Yeah, yeah. They,
1: who would have thought that? But see, they made a lot more money. I don't know. I think the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has everything to do with money. Because the people who started it,
0: uh-huh.
1: Jan Wenner and all those guys.
0: Well, Commerce managed to find, it, find its way into many things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I watched an interview with you, well, since we're on the subject of converse, <laughs> and I watched an interview with you in which you talked about a vow of poverty, and then you explained right. why, and I would like for you to talk about that a little bit.
1: Well, you know, I I talk to a lot of young people in different guises, different settings, and my preachment is I always want to know, oh, man, what you guys did was so fantastic. How can we do anything like that? And I, uh, my preachment is: you got to take a vow of poverty if you're going to do arts or political, whatever you're going to do that's outside of the mainstream. You can't expect to get paid. Right. I mean, vow of poverty, not that you got to put some ashes and sackcloth, but just that you know you aren't going to get paid. You got to do this whether you're going to get paid or not. You got to do it for art and for love, and to try and turn people on to the things that you feel and think. If you think they're they could benefit from them, as artists seem to feel. I know, I feel that way. Mm-hmm. All <laughs> oh, you can do great work and get paid. Bob Dylan, Nobel Prize winner, he mm-hmm. does great work. He gets paid. He's a billionaire. <laughs> <right>. You know, <laughs> that's right. And in the particular existence of today, you aren't going to get a record contract. Nobody's going to want to publish your books, you know, because that's not what they're looking for.
0: How do these young people react to you when you advise them in such a way?
1: Well, they I mean, they, they're they so eager to find out anything beyond what's... I mean, you know, you think of this Internet world and the digital world as a world of infinite knowledge and information, but really it's not. There's a lot of really important stuff that isn't at your fingertips. right? And like at all times, you have to seek this out and find it. You have to be on a quest to get bigger in your head, to get your mentality bigger and your feelings bigger, you know. You have to work on that because everything really in today's world is designed to suppress feelings and to make you want money and things, you know. These are the other side of art. They're the underside.
0: (laughs) I'm talking with John Sinclair. John, this new album called Mobile Homeland, Yeah. what is it that gets you to the point of saying, you know what, it's time for a new album?
1: Well, it's always time for a new album for me because I'm always creating some works, you know. Right. And what I do, uh, I write poems. I'm a poet. And then I set them to music or I find music that's appropriate to the particular poem. And then I perform it with music. And when I do that, then I want to record it because it's a finished work then. And that's the way you share these things, that and performance. I love to perform I want to talk
0: about why you live in Amsterdam now uh, <laughs> and when you moved there.
1: Well, you know, I left Detroit 25 years ago, and I moved to New Orleans mm-hmm. in 1991. I was there for 12 years, and then I moved to Amsterdam. Well, I didn't re- I'm in Amsterdam half the year. Mm-hmm. Being a pauper, I can't really qualify as a resident. I don't have any money. I don't, So I just go... F- you can spend three months out of every six in the European Union without a visa. So I go and do three months, come back here, visit my daughters, do some work, and then go back. So I'm there six months out of the year. And I first went there in 1998 as the high priest of the Cannabis Cup. They invited me and paid my way and brought my band from New Orleans. and We played five nights there at the Cannabis Cup. That was a pretty thrilling experience. And then I kind of made them bring me back the next year (laughs) because I liked it so much. And uh, then I met people there, and they started bringing me for the Cannabis Cup. Then they took me into settling there, basically. They said, we need you here. Nobody was saying that here. (laughs) So I picked up on it, you know. I don't know. I just say it's such a civilized place in my old beatnik worldview. It's a place where you don't have to have a car. Everything is close together, but well-organized, beautiful to look at. They got the canals. They got this beautiful architecture from 500 years ago that mm-hmm. they decided to look pretty good, so they stuck <laughs> with it. You know, they don't yeah. tear it down every 10 years and build a super dome or something. So I like that very much. And then of course, uh, well I can't say weed is legal, but it's tolerated and you can buy it over the counter in a coffee shop, I'm a pothead all my life. Over here I was a criminal till I became a medical patient. Over there the, the police don't enter into it at all. So to me that takes a lot of load off. And then the other part of it is nobody's armed. And being from Detroit and New Orleans where everyone's armed at all times, (laughs) I like that.
0: It's a different world altogether. It's very
1: relaxed for me. And I'm old and I don't have any duties. Mm -hmm. So I don't have to do anything. And then nobody knows who I am and there's no call for my artistic services. So I'm at loose ends. I can do whatever I want. (laughs) So I just go to the coffee shop every day with my little laptop and... You're right. Coffee, get high and right. Yeah,
0: you know your history in Detroit is so; it's a powerful history. It was at a Voluminous. time luminous. It is that is for sure, and I wanted to talk a little bit about being in Detroit, given that um, next year is going to commemorate the fiftieth anniversary. Oh, I have mm-hmm. And you were right in the midst of it.
1: I was indeed.
0: Can you talk about what that was like?
1: It depends on the statute of limitations. well from my point of view it was exhilarating it was a horrible thing as it came about but as it ended up but at the beginning it was kind of exhilarating because there was this police state atmosphere that existed in detroit where the police force which was almost entirely white policed the city, which was becoming black majority. And there was just this tension at all times, and these police always throwing their weight around and messing with people. And basically, they raided an after hours joint at five o'clock in the morning, and the people in the neighborhood thought this was disgraceful. They didn't have any trouble with this place. And so they attacked the police as they were leading the people out of the what they call blind pig into the paddy wagons, and that was how it all started. So it was kind of an innocent thing, and that wasn't like some terrorist set about to disrupt the whole city. But then the police response to this was so huge that it generated a greater response from the citizenry, both on the east side and the west side and the middle, all over. So it was an incredible thing. And then also it had the horrible result of completing the transformation of Detroit from an integrated city to an all-black city when a million white people fled for the suburbs, a million. You know, it's hard to tell this to people in Europe. They can't understand this, Detroit. (laughs) Do they
0: they know? When you say you're from Detroit, basically, do they— know about Detroit, they've heard of it?
1: Well, they have automobiles. Yeah, so they have heard of it. <laughs>
0: but they don't know its history or its standing now. No. What do you think of Detroit when you look at it today?
1: It's a wreck. They ruined it. It used to be a great place. Then all these people went to these horrible places called the suburbs. Much lower quality of life, no culture. They have all these economic theorems and all this stuff crap about what made Detroit bad. Basically, they blame the victims. The rich people ruined the city, and then all the middle class and working class white people followed them out of here, and they left this place without a tax base or any jobs, uh, the worst education system you could possibly imagine. You couldn't make this up, as Jim Price would say. You can't make this up. I don't know. I could talk about this for several days, but... Uh,
0: I mean, your history here is quite unique. There are people that live through it, and then there are people that live through it um, in the way that you did as an activist. And you give you have these titles attached to your name, Activist, Revolutionary. How do you feel about those? I did all that. So you're cool with people referring to you that way.
1: Oh, yeah, I did that. I'm proud. Yeah, sure.
0: Would you have done anything differently?
1: <laughs> you know, I only got it's, it's a funny thing to say. I only have one regret when we did the John Sinclair freedom rally with John Lennon and Yoko Ono. And I insisted that they keep the ticket price to $3. I think that was the stupidest thing I ever did in my life. If We would have said $10 life would have been entirely different when I got out of prison, but who (laughs) know, I thought it was important. Now you realize it doesn't matter if they don't want to see something, they won't go off. It's free. If they want to see the Eagles, they'll pay $165 a ticket. So, <laughs> But we used to think it was important to have things free or as cheap as possible. Because a lot of people that we were interested in didn't have any money.
0: When you went to prison, when you were sentenced to 10 years for two marijuana cigarettes, it's hard to believe, yeah, did you think... You were going to get out before your 10 years, or did you go in believing, I'm going to end up serving this time?
1: Oh, I never would believe that. No, no, I, I was challenging the constitutionality of the state marijuana laws. I had a constitutional challenge I mounted, and really I thought they wouldn't be able to keep denying me an appeal bond. See, that was the key to my incarceration. Not the sentence per se. I never expected to serve the time. I appealed on constitutional grounds, and this is a hallowed thing in our jurisprudence, supposedly. You're only supposed to not get bond if it was murder or arson or something like that. Well, they wouldn't give me an appeal bond, so that's why I had to do the time. So really, from... I thought I would get an appeal by it. I thought it would just be a matter of weeks, months. (laughs) I never expected to do the whole thing. Of course, I never expected John Lennon to come and get me out of prison either. That was a godsend in the most beautiful way.
0: That changed everything.
1: Yeah, it got me out.
0: So you were released three days later, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Beautiful thing.
0: And we should also mention that um, you were being— wiretapped for a long time. You were being harassed for quite some time. They had a file on you, all of those things. Um, Richard M.
1: Nixon said the White Panther Party was the most dangerous revolutionary group in the United States, for example. And When I read that, I'm I, proud of that. Because <laughs> you see what happened to him. Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> well, you know, that entire case took on a whole nother life. With Judge Damon Keith, right, and the entire legality of wiretapping.
1: Well, yeah, we ought to back up on that and give him a little background. I think. Mm-hmm.
0: Coming up in part two of my interview with John Sinclair, he talks about his court case, wiretaps, Richard Nixon, Watergate, and Judge Damon Keith. I'm Ann I'm Rob Reinhart. And we're about to bring back the perfect opportunity to honor your favorite pet and support WDET. During our spring fundraiser, Ann and I will combine our shows so you can honor your dog. Or your cat. Or your dog. And WDET with a gift of support. We're looking forward to hearing about your pets, no matter what kind of cat that is. Cats and dogs and any other pet you may have will be part of our fundraiser. And if you can't wait till the weekend, make your gift now at WDET.org slash give. Or call 800-959-9338. I'm DeLisi. Here's part two in the conclusion of my conversation with John Sinclair.
1: I was charged with two other people with conspiring to place dynamite at a CIA recruiting office in Ann Arbor off the U of M campus. Conspiracy. I didn't happen to have been involved in this particular act. But again, I was kind of proud that they included me because I hate the CIA. This was another reason why I didn't get the appeal bond because after I was in Jackson for three months, then the federal government brought this conspiracy charge on a crime of violence. So that they used that to say that they couldn't give me an appeal bond. Um, The other far-out thing about that was the Michigan Court of Appeals ruled that I was a danger to society. I actually have a court ruling from the Michigan Court of Appeals that says I was a danger to society and couldn't be allowed out on bond on my charge of two marijuana cigarettes. (laughs) Anyway, the whole thing was ugly. But the CIA conspiracy charge um, added to my problems, particularly because I was not part of it. But we mounted on an strenuous defense in Federal District Court of Eastern Michigan in Detroit, and we had the beautiful fortune to draw Judge Damon Keith as our judge for the trial, for the proceedings. We didn't go to trial. And as defendants do, well, we were represented by the finest left-wing lawyers in America, uh, Leonard Weinglass, Bill Kunstler, and in Detroit, well, Hugh M. Buck Davis Jr. We were beautifully defended by them. And one of the things we did was file motions to get things barred if they were wrong. One thing we said was there any information about the defendants that was re- acquired by wiretap? And so the government came forth and said that yes, defendant Pon Plomondon, Lawrence Plomondon, was overheard on wiretaps but we can't tell you about it because it's a matter of national security. Turned out those were their wiretaps on the Black Panther Party in Oakland. Well, they had these wiretaps because they had devised a theorem under John N. Mitchell, the Attorney General, and his right-hand man, former or future Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, William Rehnquist, They had devised this concept that they could tap people's phones without a warrant if they thought they were a threat to national security. And they didn't want to have to get a warrant from the judges. The underlying reason for this was they felt there were so many left-wing judges (laughs) that if they went to them with a request for a wiretap, they would tell their cell of communists, fellow commies, that they were tapping their phone. So they wanted to be able to just tap the phone and say, these people are dangerous. So they did this. So in our case, Judge Damon Key said, well, there's no such thing as a warrantless wiretap in the United States. Um, You're going to have to disclose this. And I said, well, we can't do that. The security of the country is under threat. So he ruled against them, and he said, you have to divulge... These contents, these wiretaps, or drop the case against these guys. They said, Well, we're going to have to drop the case, but we're going to appeal your ruling because we think you're wrong. So that's why, in jurisprudence, the case is known as U.S. versus U.S. District Court. It went to the Supreme Court, and they decided eight to nothing in our favor that there was no way that Richard Nixon could claim that there was a way to tap phones without a warrant. So the social implications of this were pretty vast and that lasted until the 2000s when George W. Bush changed it and just said we're going to do this anyway after (laughs) 9-11. But what happened to this case was we found out years later they decided our case I can't call the date but 72. They decided the case on a Friday, but they didn't announce the case until Monday in the news. And they the lawyers believe that Justice Rehnquist, who had just been named to the Supreme Court, called his colleagues in the Nixon Justice Department and told them that this case was gonna be revealed on Monday, that they couldn't have this. National Security Wiretap. And if they had any going on now, they would better get rid of them so on Monday they could say, we don't have any. Well, that was the weekend that they were busted breaking into the Watergate to remove the taps from the Democratic National Headquarters. And we so, were always told that so they were we putting So we had a role in. in that that we didn't even know about for about 20 years. Very proud of that.
0: <laughs> How did you feel when you found out about that? I
1: felt great. I felt it was all worthwhile. Well, we won because we won in the Supreme Court and they dropped the case and we didn't have to deal with it anymore. We won eight to nothing. And Nixon- the other great part about the Supreme Court was the Solicitor General of the United States, Irwin Griswold, refused to argue the case for Richard Dixon. It was so wrong. That was pretty mind-boggling. The government lawyer wouldn't advance the government's case because it was so it was so wrong.
0: This case is so profound, <laughs> right? And it seems like you know you would hear it cited more often or something. I don't even know how to articulate well, it. Well, like, this
1: didn't ever come out though until years and years later. It was in the '90s when I went, early '90s, I think, when I went. Months of twenty.
0: I mean, but even ago. but even when after nine eleven. It dis- blew
1: my mind when that stuff, after them, when they started doing this again, they never said anything about it.
0: Like, you would think I was
1: kind of relieved, and to tell you <laughs> the truth. Really? I well, you know, I travel a lot, and I go back and forth. Right. I travel internationally. And it's usually pretty smooth. Right. I didn't want them dragging all this <laughs> up again, and then I was going to be in the spotlight for something that I couldn't really do anything about, you know. So... Historically, as a as a historian and a scholar, I felt it was bad that they didn't talk about the precedent. But as the guy, I felt relieved.
0: <laughs> I mean, it's just hard to believe. If that. it came
1: with a check, I might be more. <laughs> no, but it would just be more publicity about political stuff. I don't really do that anymore. I mean, I feel the same way, but I'm not the least bit of a revolutionary. I'm an old guy and a poet.
0: (laughs) Do you miss uh, being in the thick of it that way? No.
1: No, I just, uh, well, I have to say two things. I really enjoy being an activist and doing things about the things I was supposed to. But as far as becoming a personality in this field, I just did that out of self defense because I was in prison and I was trying to get out, and so I had to become a cause célèbre and get people to support me because the law was dead set against me and the legislature and the governor and every authority in the state of Michigan. I was the bugbear, you know. Plus, which a <laughs> a marijuana advocate, you know. So,
0: you know, it's it's fascinating. When you look at in this day and age, so social media allows people to reach a lot of people very
1: quickly. Right.
0: You reached a lot of people and didn't have any of those resources. We did this at on
1: mimeograph machines. Yeah. And then we had a rock and roll band that was incredibly exciting, the MC5, and they were fully a part of this. They were, uh, we were, and Rob Tyner, we were joined at the head, you know? So they were eager to do this as I was eager to do it. So we uh, had a pretty powerful weapon, and SDS never had a rock and roll band, you see? (laughs) How
0: do you define success?
1: Oh, man, I don't know. Success. (laughs) I don't even think of that.
0: That is an acceptable answer for sure. (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, we're coming up on the 45th anniversary of your release from prison. True that, December, December thirteenth, right? Yes, ma'am. Were you ever during all of these unbelievable things that happened <laughs> in your life, and they are some are unbelievable? unbelievable it's the stuff that right. movies are made of, really. Um, were you ever afraid?
1: Afraid? I'm always afraid. I'm terrified. Of what? Well, I live in a police state, so I'm terrified of the police and the authorities and the rich people. I'm an ant. In their world, they can thumb me out, and if they decided to, I well, try to stay off their radar.
0: They, they didn't, aren't they interested
1: didn't. in poets anymore, so that's well, good, you know.
0: Even even well, back then, when you were an activist, they they had a heck of a time dealing with you. It wasn't very yeah, easy to get still rid of you.
1: Terrified though, yeah. Oh yeah, well, look what they did. Huh. They could send you to prison for ten years for two joints. That's pretty scary, and I was the one who got it. So so, my fear was justified, so you were um you were set up. I was defiant, though you and were defiant,
0: uh, and, sometimes- and I was
1: on acid, so I was uh, I had a different frame of reference from the average American.
0: That's for sure.
1: <laughs> I wasn't scared. I just felt I was a grain of sand in the infinite universe. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, for There's sure not too much they can do. Take your life, you get another one. I don't know. I had this LSDO look, you know. (laughs) Um,
0: After everything sort of settled down, how did you feel? After, I mean, it would seem to me to be an adrenaline, uh, like you're in a fearful state. Your adrenaline is pumping all the time. You're being wiretapped and harassed, and you're serving time in prison and all this kind of stuff. Also having a good time. You were having a good time while all this is going on. Okay. So you were having fun, but it was. Terrible. Quite a roller quite yeah. a roller coaster ride, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fun, but it's scary. Yeah, exactly.
1: When Binaural. Every,
0: <laughs> yeah. So when everything kind of settled down a little bit, how did you feel?
1: Well, for me settling down was our time in Ann Arbor with a revolutionary organization and a commune and a lot of people struggling with the government, what have you, it came to an end around the end of 1974. So several of us moved back to Detroit. And Coleman A. Young had just been elected mayor, and we thought we wanted to be here and be part of that. And what I felt then was, how am I going to make a living? Mm -hmm. I had two small children, and I was a a publicly-branded troublemaker and bad guy. How am I going to make a living? And then I thought, well, I came back here and I asked my friends at Strata Gallery and Strata Records, Ken Cox, Charles Moore was my best friend and mentor. Mm -hmm. And I asked them if I could have a desk in their, their space and in return I would do work on their records and whatever they needed for publicity and stuff like that. So then I had a place to work from. And then the people in Ann Arbor who had been publishing our newspaper, the Ann Arbor Sun, they decided to move to Detroit and make it the Detroit Sun. So they hired me as a cultural editor. So then I felt like I had my feet out of way to make a living. And then I started doing consulting work for arts groups. And I started writing grants. And we had this uh, turning point where Congressman John Conyers called a conference in Detroit and he told for jazz artists. And he said, you know, you guys are always calling my office and wondering why doesn't Detroit get any of this government money for the arts? And I looked into it and I found that y'all don't make any applications. says, <laughs> you got to send in the applications to get the money. If you send them in I'll make sure you get the money. When my ears lit up, you know, I said, wow, this would be worthwhile to put some time into this to get these guys some money, and I could take a little piece of it for myself as the guy who did the work. So I started writing grants for jazz artists, and we brought in several hundred thousand dollars into Detroit in the late 70s. I worked with Marcus Belgrave, Farouk Z. Bay, Sam Sanders... A. Spencer Bearfield, Wendell Harrison. I helped them all set up their 501C3s and write their programs and get their grants. And then we opened a place called the Detroit Jazz Center downtown at Cass and Elizabeth. Ah, uh, not Cass. Park and Elizabeth. She said, "What's there every day for three years? I had to remember. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> Let's talk a little bit uh, about the Detroit Artist
1: Workshop. Wow. Okay. Well, you aren't stopping. I love this. It's good. Usually in America, you know, you do a radio interview and they don't have any idea who you are or what to ask. They heard about John <laughs> Lennon, wrote a song about you, you know, and that's about it That's where as far it goes. as it goes. Yeah, 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 yeah. I
0: know, I know, I get it. But that, <laughs> this is fun. <laughs> well, it is. It's fun for me, too. And, I mean, the Detroit Artist Workshop, you know, you hear every once in a while somebody will mention it. With great reverence, with yeah. great reverence, though, yeah, as yeah, to yeah. the energy that was there, what it represented. Um, how long was it in existence?
1: Well, from the fall of nineteen sixty-four, really into sixty-seven, but mostly the forward motion stopped in the first part of nineteen sixty-six. I was sent to the Detroit House of Correction. I did six months in the Detroit House of Correction first before I got my prison sentence at Jackson. So I was a primary mover of this organization. In other words, I did the paperwork. (laughs) (laughs) I did all the little jobs that had to be done to make something happen. So I guess we had about a year and a half. You know, in the 60s, a year and a half is like 15 years now, you know. So much happened yeah, in a six-month period in the 60s that now 10, 15 years go by without that much stuff happening. Interesting. On an interesting, committed level, you know what I'm saying? Right. Not that nothing's happening, but things move forward in huge jerks and out of nowhere without you having any. Six months later, everything was different, you know? So that was a period of the arts workshop. We were on the ground floor of that when people were just starting to take acid. It was before they started to have the, quote, counterculture. It was still a beatnik thing. We were weirdos in the neighborhood. We stood out from others by the way we looked and acted. We all smoked weed, which was a very heavy criminal activity at that time. Mm-hmm. And we just came together organically, one person meeting another. And then we wanted to do something, but you couldn't go somewhere to do. You couldn't. Nobody wanted your poetry. Nobody wanted your music. So we got our own place. We rented a house and started putting on our own stuff. So it was revolutionary in that respect, and it was very tightly knit, and it didn't have anything to do with money. No one ever got paid at the artist workshop. Everybody did everything they did for love and art, you know. And people taught. To me, that's a very high level of activity.
0: And people taught, right? Shared information. You taught each other, yeah. Yeah.
1: And you could, if you were a student or a seeker, you could come there and learn things without having to pay anything. It's cool.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Very cool.
1: So that was all, we just shared things. It was a sharing experience, it was a beautiful thing. That's why so many, we have such good feelings about it. I see my colleagues, my, I had a birthday party that R.J. Spangler put on for me at the Scarab Club. And we had people from the Artist Workshop, musicians and poets, men. Everybody was better than they were then, you know, and it's 50 years later and they were still killing it. So it was exhilarating. And we all just have such a warm feeling for each other because we all started out together without any of us knowing what we were doing at all. You know, we'd read some book of poetry by Robert Creeley or Charles Olson or Allen Ginsberg and say, wow, that's some great stuff. I wonder if I could do anything like that. So you'd try, you know, that's... Then we'd go to the workshop, we'd read it to each other. And it was a growing experience. Every day was a big growing experience. It was exhilarating.
0: I'm fascinated by one comment that you made, which is how quickly things progressed then.
1: It was amazing.
0: I mean, that is so different because in this day and age, it feels like it takes forever to get things done. Well, you're moving
1: against a a huge... unmovable entity, you know, the the general culture that's going 100 miles an hour against you at all times. So it's hard to get attraction against this, really. And then they got people surrounded with so much triviality that it takes up all their time. That's the other thing I tell these kids, you know, they was so how do you do this? You say, well, first, turn off your television set. Boy, talk about React Nobody's ever thought of that before. <laughs> to them, a television sits like a billboard. I mean, it's just something that's there, you know. Right. No, no, click them. <laughs> you don't have to be in that world if you don't want to. What? They never thought of that before. So mm-hmm. I feel like it's hard to get that one across. I don't expect them. I expect them more to take the ball of poverty than I do to turn off their television set. <laughs> Because now they got to following them around. Now you got to tell me it's sitting in your hand. Yep.
0: Phew. It's a different world. I don't watch sure. TV
1: because I realized years and years and years ago that it would just suck up all my time and energy yep. and not leave any space for thought.
0: You are an interesting man, Mr. Johnson <laughs> Sinclair. John Sinclair, it is an honor to talk to you.
1: And this has really been fun. It's Thanks. been
0: fun. Thank you so much.